Good morning, LCM. Good morning. Today happens to be Sunday. It's September 18th. The year is 2022. And you might not have known it, you might not have realized it, but we're actually in the middle of a series right now. Yeah. We're in the middle of a series called Judah's Brothers. This morning is going to be our second message of that series. And the title of our message today is Misplaced Enmity. Come on. So last Sunday, when this series began, we learned some staggering things about Judah and his brothers. And the sinful actions that led them to sell their brother into slavery. Hence, Judah's brothers as our series. Pastors Eric and Judah walked us through Genesis 37. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. And they framed their message from verses like verse 4. Ooh, Genesis 37 verse 4 said, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him. Yeah, who's that him in that verse? Joseph, that's right. More than all his brothers. They hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Why in the world did the brothers treat Joseph like this? Well, we learn that their actions stemmed from their own misunderstanding, not of their brother, but of their father. You see, it wasn't their relationship with their brother Joseph that was the problem. It was their animosity toward their father that was the root of all of their hostilities. They just, they didn't like that their father was blessed by Joseph's birth in his old age. They didn't like that Joseph was blessed with the promises that he had received from their father. They didn't like that coat. You know, that coat that we talked about. The one that their father had gifted to Joseph. Even though it was more likely than not was just special because it had some sleeves on it. Guys, uh, do you remember that? Sleeves and versus no sleeves. Their coats didn't have sleeves. So it's like, Dad... Why in the world does Joseph get to sweat in this heat and I have a coat with no sleeves on? What's up with that, man? You know, it had nothing to do with the coat because the first thing they did was destroy it. Perhaps their testimonies hadn't dropped yet. <laughs> now, when you take on similar attitudes to your own brothers, hey, and all of us have, That's by nice. the way. All of us have. We must remind you of a reality that will sober your soul this morning. Sin always takes you further than you want it to go. Hostility towards your brothers will cause you to throw them into a pit, whether that be physically or in your mind. This is charging your brother's interest or, said another way, making them indebted to you, all on account of your own offense that is inside your head. One thing that we do know in this house is that our brothers have a fixed value. That's right. Someone say team A. Team A. Now someone say team O. Team O. Team A is fixed value. Team O is brother darkness. <laughs> Who is actually the light because Don is here. <laughs> So in this house, we're learning not to charge our brother's interest. Amen. 
not make them indebted to us when we create situations that diminish a brother's fixed value. We're not going to throw them in a pit and then be their hero and nobly rescue them. God alone is the righteous judge for them. And we'll commit to standing shoulder to shoulder instead of trying to find the next hole in the ground to throw our brother in. Guys, we also reflected on Matthew chapter 20. The parable of the laborers in the vineyard. These workers felt slighted because their fellow workers got paid the same wages that they were getting paid, but they only did a fraction of the work. Guys, the grumbling showed that they had a problem with the landowner. Not with their fellow brothers, but with the guy in charge. And this caused them to devalue the work that the others put in. The ordained work that the other laborers put, the ones that started first, they devalued that work. But we know that our Father is perfect in his giving. Yeah. And he's perfect in his giving in every way. Now if we know this, then, we, then when our brother's success feels like a threat to us, And not a blessing. We know what to do. Throw those thoughts into the pit Pit. where they belong. There are more than enough wages to go around for all of us. Guys, think about the slices of a pie or cookies on a plate like we talked about. The kingdom does not work like that. Your brother's blessing does not take away from your peace. That is... Unless your attitude is like these laborers in the field. So a frequented passage that we covered last Sunday that we will not fail to reemphasize today is Ephesians 2 verse 10. Knowing that we are God's workmanship and the good works that God has for our life, we're prepared in advance, say in advance. In advance. Of the first breath that we actually took. Our work and our brother's work was prepared and ordained in advance. All of your challenges, your difficulties, struggles, experiences, as well as your blessings have been ordained by your father before you even got here. Now that you know this, we don't despise our brother's mountaintop moments when they have success. Those mighty acts of righteousness were ordained in advance for them. So we can join with them in rejoicing when they are revealed to our brothers. Because of this. We're not focused on our own mountaintop moments. God has a plan for you. He has a plan for your family. But your sole goal and aim is to make sure that your brothers achieve their uh, God-ordained work and their victory as he sent it to them from heaven. Like Joseph and all his brothers, we all have promises. It's not that you're just your pastors or your children of the elders of this house. Every one of us has a pre-planned, pre-ordained future that God is revealing to us through every step of sacrifice for our brother's success. This makes us excited about the things that were pre-existing in your lives, but that have not been revealed just yet, but we're going to discover them together. It makes us excited to think about that. The things that already pre-exist before your first breath before you were here, before you were here at LCM, before you got born again, before the God started transforming your life, there are already pre-existing things that existed there that God said, yes, this is pre-existing suffering that I'm planning for this man. This is pre-exist- pre-existing blessing that I'm planning for this family. And guys, 
part of that joy is getting to discover those pre-existing things together. We do not yet have the full revelation, but as we live and as we're faithful and as we walk this out together, it's actually our brothers most of the time that are speaking into our lives and calling out what they see inside of us. Guys, that is how God works in this house, and that is how he's building us up. Now, last Sunday, we celebrated Judah's success, didn't we? We celebrated his success because after several decades of getting things wrong, Judah got his reticle right, guys. Now, we understand. You might not fully understand what the word reticle means. But everyone in the room understands what we're talking about when we show you a picture like this. Come on. Look at that. Guys, right there, you are looking at what we are calling this morning the righteous reticle. Otherwise stated, a good eye. As you can see, God is at the top of this righteous reticle, and man is at the bottom, praise God. And you have brothers to the left and to the right of this reticle. Now, a reticle is that centerpiece right there. It's the grid or the pattern placed in the eyepiece of an optical instrument used to establish both scale and position. You might have also heard it referred to as a crosshairs. Look at this slide as we read to you guys 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and now declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Church, when your reticle is righteous, it looks like having God top and center of your eye and your focus and putting yourself beneath his thoughts, his will, his emotions, and his goals in every situation. When this is your aim and your reality, the relationships with your brothers fall in line with the will of of God. And you make it your aim to place your brothers above yourself to help them achieve their God-given tasks and goals. Have you ever considered that your victory might be just on the other side of you rejoicing with your brother's success? True fellowship and true brotherhood, it hinges on this righteous reticle. First and foremost being the right relationship that you have with the Father in the way that you celebrate with your brother's successes and their blessings. When our radical is right, brothers brother stay, stay tight. tight. <laughs> but guys, when our radical gets right, brothers stay tight. But the inverse of this phrase is also true. When our radical gets wrong, well, things get a little cockeyed. Oh, it's a problem. We're going to show you an unrighteous reticle here for a moment. Hey, let's admit, this is the most annoying slide. (laughs) Nick made this slide. Notice he didn't turn it where it looks like an X. It's somewhere in between perfectly off-kilter and upright. And it is the most difficult thing to look at. (laughs) And it's how you should view having an unrighteous reticle, the most annoying thing in your life that you have to get rid of. (laughs) 
This is otherwise called an evil eye, guys. Do you see how cockeyed this reticle can be? When our focus is misplaced and our reticle gets, you could say, skewed, God is not really the priority anymore. You can see that. He's still at the top. No, 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 it's true. But the reticle that we're looking through, our own eye, skews that authority. And the relationships with our brothers are strained in nature, if not broken altogether, when we find ourselves looking through an unrighteous reticle. At this point, are you starting to put some pieces together about why some of your own relationships in this room might be strained? Come on, talk to us this morning. You starting to put it together with us. That's right. It's not just some mysterious occurrence like we slowly grew apart over time. That is a lie from the pit of hell. When your reticle is righteous, you can show up to the arising church. You can show up to submission ministries. You can show up to one light ministries across the planet. And pick up right where you left off with these brothers. You guys know it. You've experienced that. It's like three years have gone by and you see someone that you know in the faith. And you guys have been walking faithfully with the Lord. And you just pick up, boom, right there. Right where you stop. Guys, you can do that with a righteous reticle. No matter how much time has gone by. Because you've been connected to the same head. And have been working toward his same priorities. But when your reticle is unrighteous, like that picture right there, you get crushed. In that similar situation, there is no peace. There is no shalom. No one wants crushed reticles in this house, right? That's so true. That's so true. So how does this happen? Why does this happen? Well, to discover the answer to those questions... We need to start at the very beginning. Let's pick up in Genesis 3, verse 14. And as you're turning there, say, misplaced enmity. Misplaced enmity. That's pretty good. You guys almost there? It is a good sound to hear pages turning. That's, that's nice. All right, let's pick up in 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Everyone say the word enmity. Enmity. Nick, how was that? That was perfect. That was good. That was exceptional, by the way. Check out our next slide on this colorful word, enmity, that Pastor Nick is going to walk us through. Okay. Check this out. So this is just complete word study dictionary, straight up definition of enmity, because we realize some of you might need a more complete definition of this word. It's a feminine noun, meaning hostility. Somebody say hostility. Hostility. Oh, animosity. Say that with me. Animosity. Ill will. Say that. Ill will. It's used to signify acrimony as between the woman and the serpent. Genesis 3.15. Pretty straightforward, right? You know, when we read 
these verses right here, when we go back to the original promise, when we go back to God's original words all the way back in the garden, we easily acknowledge that there is indeed enmity in the creation, right? Like, of course, yes. No, there's a fight. There's a battle. It's here. But we usually attribute that enmity to sin in the creation. Or even worse yet, to that wicked serpent, right? He's the one that caused all this. But enmity between the serpent and the woman. Think about that. Between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. It was something that God himself put there. Did you, wow. did you see that verse? It says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. See, God put it there, and God determined where that enmity was supposed to lie. It was between these two groups right here, one to another. So does it shock you that God ordained a hostility, an animosity, even an ill will between certain groups of people? Yes. God himself put it there, guys. When we read this chapter, when we read this chapter this week, it took us by surprise. Most of the time we are distressed when we find enmity in our own hearts. You know what we're talking about. You're praying, you, you find enmity, you're like, ooh, ooh, no, 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 that is not supposed to be there. Lord, remove this from me right now. Lord, I don't want to have this. This doesn't belong. That's usually our, our response. We're constantly trying to destroy it completely from our thoughts and lives. But enmity within each one of us is not supposed to be completely stomped out. Are you hearing me, church? God placed it there for a reason, and our responsibility is to direct it in the proper way. It's because enmity is supposed to be rightly placed in its God-ordained position, not misplaced. It's supposed to be directed at the serpent, his work, and his offspring. This is how we begin to get our radical in its righteous and proper place. Our lives are not about crushed radicals. Praise God. But they are about the crushed head of the evil one underneath our collective foot as the body of Messiah. Everything that comes from heaven is pure when rightly applied and it produces life. When Adonai has ordained it, uh, what he has ordained is misplaced. Well, that always produces death. Mishandling the things of God always produces death. But even if it's contrary to how you feel, if God has ordained it and you use it correctly, it will cause the enemy's head to be crushed and your life to bud and flourish in ways that you could never imagine. We don't get past the next chapter, though, Genesis chapter 3, before we see a misapplication of this God-ordained enmity and it causes tra tragedy to strike. Turn to Genesis 4 and find verse 6. Guys, I mean, literally, turn the page. Some of you don't even have to turn the page in don't your Bible page. before we see tragedy striking and a misapplication of God-ordained enmity in the life of these brothers here. Genesis 4, verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right... Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must 
master yeah. it. Guys, the Lord's talking to Cain, and he's bringing up some very serious things to Cain. Where does this type of jealous anger come from? Where does this type of joyless, downcast nature, where does it have its root? This fully resides in an enmity that has been misplaced inside of this man. The serpent had been striking at the heel of Cain, but Cain had not been faithful in his responsibilities to crush it. And the Lord, he was still so gracious to Cain. Yeah. He brought him right back to his original responsibilities. It's your responsibility, Cain, to master this sin. You've allowed it to get way too close to your front door, Cain. But I'm telling you, master it. It's your responsibility to do so. It's time to get your reticle right, Cain. Yeah. Cain had an opportunity to love his brother above himself. Cain had an opportunity to partner with his brother above his own aspirations. Cain had an opportunity to sacrifice for his brother to the detriment of what he thought he wanted or needed. But Cain made the decision not to. He chose to remain in his own jealous anger and his joyless, downcast nature toward his brother instead. The reality is, is that Cain had a problem with his father. Yeah. Man, that's so true. Let's keep going in Genesis 4, verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Cain had a bruised heel. Cain had a bruised ego. And what did it do? It caused him to lead his brother into a field and slay him. The reality, though, is that Cain had already attacked his brother Abel in his mind long before they ever got to the field. His misplaced enmity corrupted his mind, twisting truth, twisting facts about who his brother was. And it caused him to kill his closest companion and treat him as the greatest threat to his own call and his own connection with the Lord. Church, this is what an unrighteous radical produces. When we have misplaced enmity, we are susceptible to friendly fire in any situation, it doesn't matter the situation. It's not respective to your day. If you have misplaced enmity, it will cause you to lash out at your brothers, put them in a pit, and destroy them in any situation. And we have to be on guard about these things. Verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain's enmity should have been directed toward one place, and one place only, and that is Satan and his offspring and his work, but it wasn't just directed there. Cain's righteous reticle was tilted, like we saw on our slide earlier, and it produced the worst things that you could possibly imagine. Guys, you'll remember that in Genesis 3, God ordained enmity between us and the serpent only. This was a remedy. It was a cure for sinful actions prompted by his schemes. When enmity gets misplaced, though, it no longer functions as a cure. Listen, when it's misplaced, it actually functions as a cancer. Wow. 
a cancer that corrupts the call on a man's life, just like it did for Brother Cain. So if misplaced enmity is a cancer, we want to have a brotherhood that is freed from its harmful presence in our own lives. Cain's misplaced enmity became a cancer inside of him to the point where he relinquished his responsibilities toward his brother, going so far as to murder him, but also murdering the generations that would come from his righteous line. Abel's bloods cried out to the ground to the Lord. Look at this next slide with us. So as you're looking at this cell, cancer, by definition, is otherwise healthy cells functioning outside of their prescribed purpose. Church, cancer is the body fighting the body. The body fighting against itself. That is cancer. Now, when you go to treat cancer, you have to make sure that those cancerous cells are lined up with the reticle that you are using to target them. For example, in proton radiation, they put a gold plate behind the tumor, they line up a reticle, and they shoot ionized radiation through the tumor to bounce off of the gold plate and back. If the reticle isn't lined up, it doesn't treat the cancer. It's just treatment for the sake of treatment, and honestly, could harm other healthy cells. The same is true in the body of Christ. We have to have our reticle on point so that we destroy the enmity that is between brothers and keep the enmity where it should be between us and the enemy. The Lord's question to Cain hits right at the heart of our message this morning. Where is your brother Abel? When cancer is diagnosed, it's surprising. It's appalling. It's distressing. It's all of these things. And the cure is not what you might initially think it to be. When you discover cancerous Cain inside of your own heart, you might tend to hit an altar right here. Or try to get some alone time and have some quiet time just by yourself. Or you simply panic and try to hide until the shock of the news begins to fade. God's question to Cain was meant to be instructive for him. And it's supposed to be instructive for us here today. When you find cancerous Cain inside your own heart, your first reaction must be, where is my brother? God asked Cain, where is your brother Abel? His response was wicked. It was cancerous. Am I my brother's keeper? If he was getting cured of his cancer, he would have said, where is Abel? Where is my brother? The truth is, you aren't even supposed to be in an altar if there is cancerous cane present between you and your fellow brother. Your sacrifices to God are actually despicable. Your weeping and wailing, it goes unheard by him until you deal with your own tilted reticle. And you're able to honestly say from your heart that I am my brother's keeper. We'd like to be able to say that cancerous Cain died off after the fourth chapter of Genesis, but we know that that's just not true. No. The threat of cancerous Cain, it didn't go away after this tragedy. It's actually quite the opposite. Started spreading in a disturbing kind of way. Continued to permeate every inch of sinful humanity that continued to grow and expound to the very ends of the earth. 
What we find in 1 Samuel chapter 18 is one such example of this cancer. We could say that it went from a stage one to a stage two. And you know, we don't often think this way, but David is most definitely a brother of Judah. We're talking about Judah's brothers here. Yeah. David is 10 generations after Judah and is a brother to the tribes that those brothers produced. So let's look at some interactions between the offspring of the 12 brothers of Israel for some further instruction. This is 1 Samuel 18, verse 6. Yeah, let's pick up in verse 6. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angered. This refrain galled him. I'm galled right now. I'm galled that David's getting all the attention. They have credited David with these tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. When we read this, read this passage earlier, something struck us in a different way than before. When presented with the chance to celebrate your brother's successes, Saul went the other way and turned to envy and jealousy. The NIV actually puts this well. The singing of the women galled him. Galled him. He was galled by this, this event that was taking place. Oh, is he going to get the kingdom? But you might hear that, you might hear that and begin making connections to Jesus hanging on the cross with the express purpose of raising up his brothers and dying for their success. Jesus himself was perfect as he was when he was offered gall to drink at the exact moment he refused to actually take the gall and be galled. Saul presented with the same opportunity. He gulped it down and he chose to retain the offense of the serpent that was biting at his heels. Now that was just a side note. But Jesus presented with gall on the cross, did not drink it. At the pivotal moment when he could have been justified to be galled at a situation he was being quote unquote punished for, for everybody else's sins, he refused the gall. But in here, 1 Samuel 18, we see that Saul gulped it right down. That's because Saul's reticle was off. He'd embraced an evil eye. And cancerous Cain was allowed to grow. Did you notice that Saul, it says that he kept a jealous eye on David from that time on. We know that jealousy, when left unattended to, it does nothing but grow. In fact, it, it festers. How many of you hate that word as much as I do? I do. Yeah, that, it festers. It becomes disgusting. It's just like stages of cancer. Now, stage one cancer, you know, I got stage one, stage one, it's nothing, it's no big deal. Stage two, not really, we can still deal with this. Stage three, maybe I should get some treatment. This is getting kind of bad. Stage four, terminal. See how quickly that escalated? Yeah. <laughs> Misplaced hostilities, well, they're kind of like farts. That's true. They're silent but deadly. 
The problem is just as severe in stage one, but can be dealt with and recovered from. Yeah. But when we let them grow and <clears throat> fester, then the problem becomes much more complex and has much greater consequences to it. We don't get past chapter 18 until we see this jealousy beginning to come to full vent and we see what it produces. Yeah. Let's keep going in 1 Samuel 18, picking up in verse 28. And if you need to chuckle, let's get it out now. We're going to keep going. <laughs> Some homiletics are just so close to home. All right, 1 Samuel 28, or 18, picking up in 28. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him, and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. This word enemy here is Strong's 341 here and 342 in Genesis 315 for enmity. They are the same root word expressing the same thought. What exactly was it here that caused cancerous Cain to root itself so deeply inside the heart of Saul? It was two things. He realized that the Lord was with David. He saw that the others wanted, uh, that he wanted soul attention from had actually grown in their love and brotherhood with David. Saul's own desire to control the situation and turn it how he wanted it to go for his own benefit, it was slipping from his grasp. And he hated that. The Lord was working on others' behalf, which meant that he couldn't be working for his own benefit. Saul's own family was endeared to others and not just him anymore. They were loving David, which means that he wasn't getting the attention that he rightfully deserved. So this root of cancerous cain inside of Saul... Those two main aspects that the scripture teaches us. The Lord's with someone else and not with me. I can see it. I can see God's blessing on someone else's life. And I want people's attention and I want it solely, but I can see that the people that I love and admire, their attention is going somewhere else. Those are the very two things that cause cancerous Cain to spring up and begin its murderous work. But I think we're truly beginning to strike at the root of this cancer now. Yeah. Like Saul, do you despise seeing your brother rise? Because it means he might take your place after you. Like Saul, is David functioning how God made him actually the threat to your own self-confidence? Like Saul, has Cain's cancer grown in your heart to the point that you cannot glory in the reality that for your brother to increase, you must decrease. Cain's cancer is wicked. It's silent, but it's deadly. It's content if there is mutual benefit in an endeavor. Like, ooh, if, if I can gain from this situation as well, then this is a worthwhile pursuit. But Cain's cancer hates it if that endeavor causes one to have to give up his life so that the other may succeed in his life. When you have enmity toward another man or woman who belongs to the Lord, that enmity is misplaced. And you show yourself and everyone else 
whose offspring you're choosing to behave like, the serpent and his offspring. Saul's radical wasn't just off. Saul's radical was actually upside down. Take our next slide. Look at that, church. That's some, that's some gnarly stuff. When you discover cancerous cocaine in you, you don't just put yourself above God. You declare yourself as God over your brothers. And whether it's conscious or not, you begin to exert sinful authority over your brothers with the desire to make them indebted to you. This produces a murderous spirit in us. Just act like it produced in Saul. Wanting to kill your brother, kill his calling, his future, and his generations with him. All because the Lord is with him and the people of God love him and respect him. By all accounts, those are good things. But when your reticle is flipped upside down, you begin to hate what God loves. Even Saul's own daughter loved David. And that caused Saul to act in such a wicked way towards such a good brother. But let me ask you, haven't we all done this? Yes. I know I've done it so many times. And I'm so grateful that the Lord would allow his word to be illuminated to my heart so that I can correct these things. He's a good father. If you're sitting here under conviction, remember that he is a good father. And he wouldn't discipline you and teach you if he didn't want you to continue to grow and get better. Even after repentance from the very enmity that we are preaching on this morning, doesn't it still have a way of biting at our heels as we pursue the word of God? We have this great revelation, and we're going to try to get it right, and we are going to get it right in the name of Jesus, but there seems to be this annoying snake nipping at our heels while we're in pursuit of godly things. You see, church, we've all been like Saul. We are all like Judah and his brothers. But our older brother and our Savior, he will heal us. So let's turn to Genesis 50 and see how Judah and his brothers are doing from last week. But keep in mind, this is after Judah's repentance and the giving up of his life for the benefit of his brother Benjamin. Yeah, keep that perspective as we begin to read in Genesis 50 together, starting in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead... Uh Uh-oh, that's not good. Daddy's dead. We think that everything's about to change now. Uh They said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us? What if he pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father, not our father, your father, Joseph, left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers. Forgive the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. So, seriously... After Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, after Joseph weeps over them, after he forgives them, 
after he makes provision to bring the whole entire family to Egypt to be together with him. And after we saw that Judah repented for his misplaced enmity toward his brother, and he lays down his very life for Benjamin. They are here at this same place once again? Yes. The answer is yes. They're here again. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what stage three of cancerous Cain might look like. When you have misplaced enmity for brothers instead of for the serpent and his offspring, and you have allowed it to fester, fester, not over moments, but over a couple decades, as these brothers have indeed done, you easily allow your own cancer to be, to be projected upon your brothers. What does that look like? Well, you start assuming that they are going to treat you the same way that you want to treat them. Wow. That's cancer. So the brothers had misplaced enmity for Joseph for several decades. So when their father died, they thought that their past sins would be held against them because they had been holding past offenses over the head of their brother Joseph. When you find this biting at your heels once again, when you hear it crouching at your door desiring to have you, there's only one right way to handle it, and that's to crush it. Let's go to verse 18. It says, his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him and said, we are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? Wow. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph's brothers, they declared, we are your slaves. But Joseph's response was, am I in the place of God? The answer was obviously no. Joseph was sure of this because his radical was righteous. Joseph never wanted to be God over his brothers. Joseph just wanted to be a brother to his brothers. And he had done everything within his power to make sure that they were taken care of and that his brothers were set up for success. It's because Joseph was not full of Cain's cancer. Nor did he have Saul's jealous stank eye that was all cattywampus and cockeyed. Joseph chemoed those contemptible thoughts, and he shouted, Where is my brother? Where is my brother, and what does he need? And also, why I'm at it, where are his children in this family? Because I'm going to take care of them, too. Man, a good brother knows not only how to lock arms with his fellow comrade, but also to make sure that his brother, his children, his family, his dog, every facet of his life is taken care of because there's more enough of me to pour out than I'm willing to keep. Joseph knew his role in his brother's lives, and he knew that everything was, uh, that God was doing in his life was for the express purpose of building up his brothers. Joseph corrected the evil eye. That's right. Joseph had a righteous reticle. He had a good eye. I'm going to put that back on the screen for a second. Man, that's satisfying. God 
in his eye, in his mind's eye, God was where God belonged. And he was where he belonged at the bottom of this righteous reticle. And he made sure that he positioned himself between his brothers on his left and on his right. And it didn't matter how much time had gone by for Joseph. It didn't matter that two decades had gone by for Joseph. He saw them and he picked right back up where they left off. But with a righteous reticle, he was able to pour out blessing and sacrifice for them to repair any broken re- brokenness in their relationship. So we took a brief aside to visit Judah and his brothers. Now let's get back to 1 Samuel and see how David did this. Yeah, come on. We're picking up at a place in the story where Saul is on the hunt. I mean, he's like stage four cancerous cane right here. He's actually oh, wow. on the hunt to try to kill a brother. And he's actively trying to destroy God's call in that brother and his family. Let's see what happens in 1 Samuel 26, verse 17. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is that your voice, David, my son? David replied, Yes, it is, my lord the king. And he added, Why is my lord pursuing his servant? What have I done? And what wrong am I guilty of? Now let the Lord, my Lord, the king, listen to his servant's word. If the Lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. If, however, men have done it, if men have done what? If men have incited Saul against his brother David, may they be cursed before the Lord. That's rightly placed enmity right there. That's rightly placed. They have now driven me from my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said, go serve other gods. David rightly knew here that to put division between brothers is the work of Satan and deserving of a curse. David addresses his brother, Saul, in whom was cancerous Cain to the greatest degree. And he actually helped Saul to put that misplaced enmity in its proper place. Toward the serpent and towards his offspring. Those causing division within God's family and inciting brothers against one another. What's more, he appeals to Saul with the desire to redeem the wickedness that had been present before brothers since the fourth chapter of Genesis. Does it, before we read our next verse here, does it ever strike you as odd that the word of God instructs us in Titus to warn a divisive person once? And twice, and then have nothing to do with them after that point? Isn't that, isn't that, like, when you read that, sometimes it might strike you as odd. No, that is enmity placed in the right spot. The right place. Because the very desire of Satan and his offspring and his kingdom is to cause divisions within God's family, divisions within the body of Christ, divisions within the people of God. And so when you see that at work, if a brother is willing and he just doesn't know what he's doing, you warn him. If he's doing it again, you correct him and you warn him. The third time, though, he wants to be a part of Satan's work. So put enmity where it belongs. Put your foot down. Let's continue to read. Let's continue to read in verse 20. Now do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. 
The king of Israel has come out to look for a flea, as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you've considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and I've erred greatly. David here, praise God. He plays his enmity right where it belongs. He actually spares his brother's life and even gives it up for the sake of his brother's healing and success. Saul responds rightly as well with repentance. Come back, my son, he says. You've considered my life as precious. I'm the one that has been acting like a fool. I have erred greatly. How do you see a relationship with a brother restored and renewed to its righteous reticle? When you realize that you have been separated from close brothers, you cry out in repentance, where has my brother been? Where is my brother? Come back now. What's beautiful about this is that while Saul Saul is succumbing to Cain's cancer, he had a brother who loved him more than he loved himself. And he came to his rescue with no thought to his own life. He put his life in jeopardy to go and to find Saul and to have this conversation with him. You might be sitting here this morning trying to think about how this applies to your own life. We're going to help you apply this to your own life, starting in Ephesians 2, verse 11. As you're turning to Ephesians 2, verse 11, how beautiful is the story of Saul and David? Saul wants to kill David, and David knows that Saul wants to kill him. But what's special about David's heart is he says, whether he wants to kill me or not is not part of the issue. My brother needs me, and if I refuse to show up because I have regard for my own life, then who is going to rescue him? Who is going to pull along his side and bring that life-giving revelation at the cost of my own life? That's because David was at the bottom of the radical. That's because he put himself last in every situation, and what it produced was life in his brother. Are you in Ephesians 2.11? It says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Church, Jesus came to you. He came to us. Just like David came to Saul. That's right. You, you want to put yourself in David in that story, and so do we. But we're not David in the story. We're Saul in the story. We, we are the guy that needed the rescuing. And we are currently sitting here as men and women that still need that same rescuing from our brothers. Yeah, we were enemies of our older brother Jesus in every way. Even dirty Gentiles, uncircumcised in heart, separate from him, excluded from this brotherhood with no hope and an evil eye that had no chance of ever being healed. That's the condition we were in when Christ came to us. Oh, verse 13, though. But now. Somebody say, but now. But now. But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Yeah. For he himself is our peace. 
who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with his commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Guys, these words for hostility in these verses, verse 14, verse 16, they are the cognate for the Hebrew word enmity that we had in Genesis 3.15. The primary purpose of Jesus' death. The primary purpose of his blood being shed, according to Ephesians 2, is to correct our own evil eye toward one another. Our own hostilities toward each other that have their root in an overarching hostility that has its foundation toward him. This passage does not say that Christ will put to death our hostilities. No, 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 no. It says that through the cross, he already has put to death our hostilities in the past tense. That means the barriers and dividing walls of hostility that we have are destroyed. And it's time for us to start living like it, church. The cross was for the express purpose of putting to death enmity between brothers. And causing two of them, or three of them, or 200 of them, or 700 of them. To operate as one man, one church, and one brotherhood. So from now on, from now on, well, you know, let's let the scripture do the talking for us here. You're going to want to turn to 2 Corinthians 5, and you're going to want to find verse 16. Verse 16, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Amen? Amen. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. We once regarded Christ in this way? Well, perhaps they regarded him as a man from Nazareth where nothing good can come from. Or maybe they viewed him in a worldly way as just the son of a carpenter. Could anything ever great come from this man? Had to be questions that they had asked while Jesus was walking the earth. Have you ever regarded your brothers in the same way that the disciples regarded Jesus? Like, oh, that that man is just from Louisiana or Port Lavaca or etc. Or this man who esteems to be a great man of God, he's just a lowly mechanic. Or he just sells in the construction industry. Or he's just a construction worker. Or he's just a common laborer. Could anything great ever come from these men? Guys, the answer is yes. Because from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. And even though we once regarded Christ in this way, while he was in the flesh and he was a lowly carpenter's son from Nazareth where nothing good could come, now they knew who he was. 
He revealed himself to him, and they knew. And the words in the Gospels and the words in the Newer Testament clearly speak to us and say, you viewed him like that, and you do so no longer. Now it's time that you move on, and you stop viewing your brothers like that, because they're in Christ just as much as you are. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. This morning we are committed. I mean, we're, yeah. we're putting down a commitment right now to no longer look at our brothers from a worldly point of view. Come on. We're no longer going to count our brothers' past against them. Their past residences, where they came from, their past sins, their past aspirations, their past wrongs. No, our daddy issues can be healed right here and right now when we consider the blood of our older brother. What he shed at the cross to heal us. He did everything that he did so that he could see each other, so that we could see each other, and so that we could see all of us as new creations in Christ. Amen. Let's keep going in verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So God made his son Jesus sin for us. This means that Christ has taken our sins upon himself. So that we may become the righteousness of the father. That means you And your brothers are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Say, I am the righteousness. I am the righteousness. As you're keeping that phrase in your head, let's take one more look at this beautiful righteous radical. Mm. We're fixing the sinful radical in our own evil eye towards our brothers this morning. With God in the place of God where he belongs. And us in line and in step with our brothers, doing everything and sacrificing everything that we can so that they are a success in their kingdom call. This morning we grab hold of what the word says about us, that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So with that thought, you're going to want to turn to Matthew 6.33 with us. Like as fast as you can. Come on. Oh, I hear you. Come on, come on, come on. Matthew 6, 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Come on. Oh, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first his kingdom and seek first his righteousness. What in the world could that possibly mean? More importantly, who in the world could that possibly be speaking about? Seek first his kingdom and your brothers who are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Guys, when we're seeking the kingdom first, when we're seeking our brothers first who are this righteousness, 
then we know the answer to our Genesis 4 question. Where is my brother? You know this because you are standing on your right, because they are standing on your right and left as you stand under the Father. Yeah. Guys, we can see this revelation hitting your hearts this morning. But we can also feel cancerous Cain wanting to nip at your heels. Those concerns for yourself, your own provision, your own promises. Thoughts like, oh, but if I, if I do this, I won't be taken care of. Oh, that's what verse 34 is all about, though. Verse 34. Therefore, do not, I repeat, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So he's not saying, like, I worry about my own day today and then I don't worry about my own day tomorrow? Or are we actually talking about seeking first the kingdom and our brothers and not worrying about us tomorrow? And seeking his kingdom and your brothers. Who are the righteousness of God? God promises that you will have nothing to worry about. God says, you focus on these two things and you let me worry about the rest. This enables us to sacrifice for each other in astounding ways, holding nothing in reserve, ways that the world could never understand. If we don't seek our brothers first, if we don't seek the kingdom first, then we are only able to make these rational sacrifices for each other. But when we seek the kingdom first and we seek our brother's needs first, not worrying about tomorrow, man, the world cannot understand that level of sacrifice. Remember that in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. What is that life? That life that you possess is your very breath, the very, very spirit of a man that is freely given up on behalf of his brothers. Jesus taught it, but our brothers in the first century put it on display for us. We'd like you to turn to Acts 7. As we near a close with you this morning, and we're going to talk about a man named Stephen who put this on display. We all know the story of Stephen. He was wrongfully accused. He was dragged out of the city. By who, though? By his own brothers. This is Acts 7, picking up in verse 59. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen's last words reflected the very life that he lived. He said two things. Receive my spirit, also one of the very last cries of Jesus. And secondly, do not hold this sin against them. Lots of similarities there, actually. Stephen knew that his brothers were the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And they, too, had promises in store for them that maybe have, had not yet been revealed yet. Stick with us here for a moment. Stephen's heart was free of cancerous Cain. It allowed him to see his king clearly, first and foremost, which allowed him to see his brothers rightly. Even as his life was being entrusted to the Father in the realest way that you could possibly imagine. What did Stephen do in these moments? He did what he had done every day prior. It says he gave up his spirit. 
That means he gave up his mind. He gave up his thoughts for the sake of the kingdom and for his brothers. That means that he gave up his will. He gave up his desires for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of his brothers. That also means that he gave up his emotions, his feelings for the sake of the kingdom and for his brothers. But who is recording this story? What's the man's name writing this down? Who wrote Acts? Luke is recording this story. Yeah. Who, who's the companion of Luke that we're pretty fond of through the epistle? Ah, Luke's recording this story. The companion of the very brother, Saul of Tarsus, who watched Stephen give up his spirit for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of his brothers, the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, and he writes it down to make sure that we are recorded for all of time. What impact might that have made on the man who we now call Paul? We know what impact it made on him. We're still reaping the benefits of that sacrifice even to this day. So as we come to our final passage, we want to encourage this brotherhood that you never know what your daily death will produce. Said a better way, you do not yet know who your daily death will produce. For Stephen, it birthed a fellow brother named Paul of Tarsus. You're going to want to turn to the Gospel of Luke and find chapter 22, verse 29. And as you're turning there, I want you to imagine what that scene looked like. For a man like Stephen, who was free of Cain's cancer, being stoned by his brothers for wanting to bring actual life to them, falls to the ground as stones are hitting him, pelting him in the face, and I imagine he did not look up with eyes full of tears and eyes of despair saying, if I had only preached a little better, if I only could have saved a few more, I imagine he looked up and he saw Jesus at the throne and then I imagine him locking eyes with Paul. Not with eyes of tears, but with eyes of hope and says, I see things that you don't even see in yourself right now and I will give my life for that. Let the stones fall. I give up my spirit freely. I never owned it anyways. It belongs to the king who I'm dying for, who I have submitted my life to so that you might be just as I am. A soldier of Christ, an ambassador for him. Are you in Luke 22? And I confer on you a kingdom. Seek first the kingdom. Just as my father conferred one on me. So that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones. Judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, Simon, strengthen your brothers. Seek first the kingdom. Seek first your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. We all know how many times Peter got this wrong. But there's no way today that when we mention Peter to you, you think of a failure. That's right. A failure who had his reticle wrong and put himself in the place of God. We don't view Peter that way. 
It's because he spent the rest of his life giving his spirit, giving his mind, his will, his emotions to the very last breath for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of his brothers. That's what we remember about Peter. Church failure is a fact, but it is not fatal and it is not final. Repent, seek first his kingdom, seek first your brothers. It's because our seats at this table in this house are secure with a fixed value when we place our enmity where it actually belongs in its proper place. When your reticle is right, when your enmity is right, we will reap the benefits of the strength that we gain from each other's lives. Verse 35 is our last verse. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without a purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. Nothing. They lacked nothing, guys. That's because they had each other. Come on. They lacked absolutely nothing because when they sought first the kingdom and when they sought first his righteousness that were the brothers on their left and their right, they realized that God provided for them collectively and there was nothing that they lacked. Their lives were fulfilled. Their lives were growing. They were maturing and they were doing it together. Guys, we're stirred. We're convicted. We're encouraged all at the same time in this word. We know that you guys are too. In the midst of all those emotions, though, this morning, we're not going to make this altar our one-stop shop today. If you need to get your reticle right this morning, we're going to leave the gift at the altar. And we're going to ask ourselves today, where is my brother? That's the question we're going to ask. So have that rolling around in your head as you stand with us this morning. Where is my brother? Guys, if you've got a crooked reticle, that's not a good thing. We've all been there. We've all felt it and we've all experienced it before. This morning as you contemplate where is my brother, you're not going to go to the altar today. You're going to contemplate where is my brother. We're going to pray. We're going to worship the Lord. And if you need to correct your reticle, it's not going to be at the altar. It's going to be in the arms of your other brother. Affirming him, strengthening him, telling him that you are recommitted to dying for the vision that God has for his life. That's what we're going to do this morning together. Guys, we're going to seek the kingdom first. We're going to learn how to do that. We're also going to learn how to seek his righteousness first and foremost. Guess what? We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Lift your hands with us. Father, we thank you, mighty God, for allowing us to see, to see through our mind's eye, mighty God, and through the vision, Lord God, clarity that you are bringing into our hearts and minds. Father, you are so good. Thank you for examples that we see in your word. Lord, thank you for the good and the bad, mighty God. 
Lord, so many times we are like Judah and his brothers. So many times we find ourselves like Saul, running from where we should actually be with our brothers, or worse yet, pursuing them and trying to be detrimental to them. Father, we repent for this today, Lord God, and we ask, no, we cry to you, Lord, where are our brothers, mighty God? Bring them to our mind this morning, Lord God. Lord, bring healing into your house today, Lord God. Bring all the restoration that you desire to bring, mighty God. Help us give up our spirit, our mind, our will, and our emotions for the sake of our brothers that we might build those in this place. In Jesus' name.